Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I'm glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening, and as always, for your feedback, delighted to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are really on the cutting edge of innovation and strategy in the nonprofit world. I've been fortunate to have several guests who are really pioneers in their sector, and this week's conversation with Allison Singer is no exception. Uh, Like many of you, she has a cause about which she's passionate, but she's taken her lifelong passion for serving individuals with autism and turned it into a national nonprofit called the Autism Science Foundation. Now, Allison's story is really a fascinating one, but it's also a master class in both the fundamentals of starting a nonprofit, but also how to pivot strategically under these current circumstances in particular. Listen up for some great advice on creative special event planning, collaborative family resources, online webinars to expand your reach, and much, much more. To get to all these resources, don't forget to check out the show notes on this episode. Just go to the podcast or the news page at patentmcdowell.com and you'll find out all of the resources Allison and I discussed, links, books, as well as, of course, more information on Allison and the great work she's doing at the Autism Science Foundation. Speaking of resources, don't forget to also check out our website and connect with us. Let us help your nonprofit with its strategy or fundraising, or let us help you on your professional journey through any of our coaching or training programs. In fact, it's not too late to join this fall's virtual cohort for new development professionals. Simply shoot me an email if you'd like to find out more. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Allison Singer. Allison, thank you for joining me on The Path. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you, Allison. Your nonprofit leadership journey really is a lifelong journey, as I have learned. And I know that our listeners are going to benefit from the lessons you've learned throughout your kind of professional career and this personal journey you have brought to the forefront. Let's start with that. How did you first come to the nonprofit path? Well, uh, the nonprofit I founded, the Autism Science Foundation, really grew out of my lifelong experience. I grew up with autism. Uh, My older brother was diagnosed with autism in the 1960s, um, back in a time when autism was blamed on bad parenting. Um, The belief at the time was that uh, children retreated into the world of autism because their mother uh, was too cold to properly bond with them. Those mothers were called refrigerator mothers because uh. they were so cold, and, and that's in fact what happened to my mother. Um, she was told that my brother retreated into autism because she didn't really want to be a mother, and she should try harder with the next child, which is a horrifying thing to say. Yeah. Um, and we know that that's absolutely not true. That autism is not caused by bad parenting. Um, but I grew up with a, you know, a brother who really, really struggled. Um, And then when I had a daughter of my own, my oldest daughter was also diagnosed with very severe autism. So things fortunately had changed a lot uh, from the time my brother was diagnosed in the 1960s to the time my daughter was diagnosed in the 1990s. Um, But we still knew very little about the causes of autism. And we had very few treatments for autism. And the treatments that we did have had no biological underpinnings. I I remember uh, taking my daughter to one neurologist who said, well, you know, you could give her a little Prozac. And I said, oh, oh, what's the underlying biological (laughs) mechanism by which the Prozac's gonna help her? And he sort of looked at me quizzically and said, well, it might just make her feel better. And and maybe you should take some too. Oh, good grief. And that just sort of left me with the realization that we needed to understand the biological causes of autism. And so that that really drew me. I, I was working as a journalist at the time, business news journalist, and um, I really, that's when I made the, the shift um, into working as a professional in autism nonprofits. And I, I started at Autism Speaks. I was there for four years. I was there when that organization launched. But again, um, I really wanted to just focus in on scientific research. I felt that at the end of the day, 
understanding the causes of autism to, so that specific treatments could be developed that were targeted at those causes was really the best thing that we could offer uh, to people with autism. That's so we founded, we founded the Autism Science Foundation to really focus on scientific research. It's fantastic. And it, it strikes me there's some similarities. I was fortunate to work for the Special Olympics organization, also serving a different population of uh, individuals with developmental disabilities. But Eunice Kennedy Shriver, you know, when she started it, made the comment that, that, that she was dealing with so much mythology as opposed to science in, in terms of that population. And it's just sad to hear what you faced, but obviously you're doing something about it and eager to unpack that further. Before we go there though, Allison, let me ask you, I'm asking all my guests in this very strange environment in which we all operate, how have you managed to stay organized in, in a, a Zoom oriented and virtual environment? Have you found personally things that have helped you stay productive despite all the challenges? Well, I think COVID-19 disrupted everyone's life in a way that we couldn't possibly imagine. Um, and I think that's particularly true for families raising children with autism. Absolutely. You, know, you see on the news or you read online about how uh, in the spring families were struggling with online learning. That was even harder for our children who have who need special education. You know, we... Those children need to be one-on-one -on -one with highly trained special education teachers. And it was very difficult for them uh, to work over Zoom. Um, and it's, it's also impossible to deliver some of the important therapies that our children need, like occupational therapy and physical therapy, if the therapist can't be in the same physical space. Right. Children. So a lot of our kids... Um, struggled with that. And then a hallmark of autism is the need for sameness. And we lost all sameness. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, our kids do well when they have a set schedule and they know exactly what's going to happen. That provides them comfort. It really helps to relieve their anxiety. And that is not possible really in a, a COVID-19 world. So the, the lives of our families have been, I think, disrupted at a scale even beyond what's typically being experienced. Makes total sense. And I know you've begun to or have developed resources to help these families. And I'm sure that applies even to your own team, right? That you've had to create a, a new infrastructure, if you will, to make sure things can continue to move forward. Well, when this happened, we realized as an organization that we were going to have to pivot, that the needs of our families had changed and that there were very acute needs um, in the scientific community and in the parenting community that we needed to address. So the types of research that we had been funding, uh, university-based research, clinical trials, those were no longer able to take place because children weren't able to go to a university setting to participate in, uh, in a trial. Um, so we worked specifically with scientists and universities to help them adapt those protocols. So things like how would you do a diagnostic evaluation over Zoom? Uh, how will you do a behavioral assessment when a child has a mask on her face? Right. Um, things of, of that nature. So we worked specifically with the scientific community and we offered a new grant mechanism that we called the COVID pivot grants specifically to help scientists uh, change their research protocols to accommodate the COVID-19 realities. So a lot of this, a lot of them were uh, things like new technologies, providing iPads for the families so that they could participate. Uh, we were particularly eager to focus on longitudinal studies where years worth of data had been collected. And uh, if those studies stopped, we would lose all of the benefit of those studies. Uh, so we really looked carefully at what did the scientists actually need in order to continue to do the research that was necessary. And we focused our granting in that area. We yeah. also spent a lot more time um, working directly with our, with our families to try to get at the issues that I described earlier with regard to special education. Um, so we've done a series of webinars 
um, on how to work with kids so that they can be more actively involved in Zoom. We've done um, ABA principles for how to get your child to wear a mask. Um, we're working with companies that are looking at using robots as therapy partners so that even if the therapist, the live therapist can't be in the physical space with the child, um, the therapist could control a robot partner that was in the physical space with the kids. So we're really trying to take a very broad look at what can we do as an organization to solve the new needs because the needs have changed. And if our, if our families' needs have changed and our scientists' needs have changed, then what we do has to also change. Absolutely. And it's fascinating. And, and of course, we'll share these resources on the episode show notes. And I guess, Allison, going back to that period in, I guess, mid-March or so, you had a lot of programs and initiatives underway. How, from a strategic planning standpoint, did you just kind of stop and reprioritize everything in light of the virtual environment? I guess lots of nonprofit leaders were, were just kind of overwhelmed almost with activity. And I'm just curious how you approached all the things you had on your plate to deliver this pivot, so to speak? Well, I'm fortunate that um, my staff, the team I work with, uh, really dug in. Um, they are working so hard, and I'm so proud to be a part of this team. It, it sort of makes me laugh when you hear um, how during the pandemic or during the quarantine, people have watched every episode on Netflix and they talk <laughs> about Mandarin. Yeah. I think, how on earth do you have time for that? We have been busier than ever. Really? And, and my team has been more productive than ever. They have really um, focused on the mission and they, they understand what our families are, are going through and they're so eager to do everything they can. So that certainly helps. And then I have a very supportive board, which always helps. Um, and... I think it, it was really also just being very honest as the head of the organization with our board about what we needed and with our staff about what was happening and making sure to communicate as often as possible, even more uh, than I would normally, particularly right. with regard to finances. I think um, one thing that I knew right away was we were going to have to cut back. Um, we were going to have to conserve cash right. and our donations were at risk, that our fundraising events were at risk. And um, in fact, we did lose a good number of major donors who said this year they're just going to focus on funding food banks and, and who can fault them? Right. You know? It's human services type exactly. initiatives, right? Yeah. And so you, you can't, I didn't really feel comfortable saying, well, here's why you should support autism research instead of food bank. I'm like, yeah, I, I totally <laughs> that. That, makes, that makes sense. Right. Um, so, you know, we've had to be creative in um, how we look to raise funds. And also we've had to cut back on expenses. And um, I think if you're honest with your staff and I was, I've been more open about our finance, our finances and our financial situation, um, with the staff than I, than I usually am, but I didn't want them to be fearful um, that we might go out of business. I was very upfront with them. I knew right away that the key for us long-term was to make sure that we didn't have to have layoffs, that we really needed to pare down spending so that we could pay salaries. Right. I feel as you know, the, the head of an organization, I'm responsible for the income of the families who, who are on our team. So I took that very seriously. And, and I was very honest with the board and with our team that our first priority, um, even though we serve families, our first priority has to be our own families. And that if people, if people had childcare issues, they needed to attend to that. If people were ill, they needed to attend to that. And that as an organization, we would, we would accommodate that. I, I actually kind of love when my staff brings their kids on the Zooms. I, I know, I think they're more uncomfortable when they're, <laughs> I am, I kind of nice. love it. I right. wave at the kids. I'm playing peekaboo with the kids. I love it. I know they, they worry that maybe it's unprofessional, but I, I love it. It is a family affair, isn't it? And good for you for creating, it sounds like an even tighter bond with your team as a result of, you know, difficult circumstances. <laughs> right. Um, 
Well, let me ask you this, though, because you make a good point. Uh, there are a lot of nonprofits, if they're not in the human services space right now, they, they feel a bit guilty or, or conflicted in terms of raising money, uh, what might be implied, you know, competing with. But I, I assume you've had funders that stay with you. And how have you kind of pivoted your fundraising message, I guess, Allison, in these current circumstances? Well, for the first few months of the quarantine, I was dead set against any fundraising. I right. just felt like it was not appropriate for us to ask for funding um, in, in that environment. It just, it felt wrong to me. Um, I read a lot, I listened to a lot of webinars on that topic and I just, I had to go with my gut there. Um, but it just felt, it felt just wrong as a person to do that. Right, right. Uh, but, but since that time, I think things have, have changed a little. We have um, one of our fundraisers that is our annual day of learning uh, we've moved online and normally we we charge for those tickets and we do raise some funds through that event but this year because it's going to be virtual um, the tickets are going to be free so nice um but we're trying to look at that as an opportunity if not to raise funds then to raise friends right which you can fun. circle back to maybe exactly and you know we've really tried to say let's not look at what's gone wrong because of COVID. Let's look at the opportunities that have come about. And one is that when you do an event virtually, you're not limited in geography. So yes, where, indeed. Whereas our day of learning typically attracted, it's held in New York City. This one's held in New York City and it would attract people from New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York. Um, our event in San Francisco would attract people from Silicon Valley. But now, when we do our New York City day of learning, you can be anywhere in the world exactly, and, and participate. So we're trying to look at that as an opportunity uh, rather than a limitation. Um, and because we've cut back on expenses, I think we'll be able to weather a year of that. Um, hopefully it won't be longer. Yeah, exactly. But in, in essence, the, 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 the day of learning fundraising will be more by invitation. Is that a fair way to say it as opposed to ticket sales driving the revenue there you're hoping of course people are going to get engaged and then we'll simply volunteer to give exactly and um some of the sponsors of the event have stayed with us um, nice. they retained their sponsorship and we've been looking for creative ways to offer them the benefits of sponsorship with an online journal and opportunities for videos so we're really trying to be creative in how we offer sponsors the opportunity to get in front of our participants. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Allison, I want to go back to something in terms of your inspiration to found the Autism Science Foundation. As you know, there are a lot of folks, uh, very well-intentioned folks in the nonprofit community, passionate about a cause and, and just simply decide, I need to start a nonprofit. But I'm guessing you were, were scientific in your approach. Did, did you find there were simply gaps in the scientific services or research provided you know, what literally motivated you to start the, the foundation? Well, before I founded the Autism Science Foundation, I was working as executive vice president at Autism Speaks. And Autism Speaks is a very large organization. They, they had a lot of goals, um, including legislative advocacy and awareness and also scientific research. But I really wanted to focus in, as I said, on scientific research and work with families and scientists together, bring those two constituencies together to talk about what families really needed out right. of scientific research. So that when we fund research, the results can provide real value to real people not just sort of asking scientific questions for the sake of asking them, but really focusing the science on what do we need to know to improve people's lives. And I think the scientific community understood that and we have focused on, on science that tries to get at the underlying biological mechanisms so that we can create treatments that are biologically sound. Um, when my daughter was diagnosed, we basically had one behavioral treatment. And now because of research, uh, we have probably over a dozen different types of behavioral interventions. And we also have different medications that are in various phases of FDA clinical trials that are actually 
targeting the core symptoms of autism. Nice. So, so, you know, back when I, back to the story I told earlier, that the medications that our kids would be offered would just be to calm them down or um, they'd be almost tranquilizers, which was appalling. Right. These, these medications are targeting the core symptoms of autism, the social deficits, the language deficits, the restrictive and repetitive behavior issues, things that will provide actual relief of symptoms and enable people to enjoy a much better quality of life. Uh, that's fantastic. And I, again, I guess still on that point, were, were there things that examples or models that helped you in the creation? Or was this something you had kind of in the back of your head for years, uh, bolstered by your real life experiences professionally and personally? Or did you find other examples within, you know, maybe the medical or research field that kind of helped you get started? Well, we certainly, we, like to work with other organizations as much as possible. And I, I looked at how other disease-based organizations had launched nonprofits. Um, and they, you know, at the time that we launched the Autism Science Foundation, there was a real disagreement in the scientific community with regard to continuing to invest in research looking at whether vaccines cause autism. Right, so, right. So back in, the, back in the 90s, a paper was published uh, that posited the, the hypothesis that the MMR vaccine might cause autism. Um, and I think at the time, it, we were right to invest in studying vaccines. The kids were certainly getting more vaccines than you know, we did back in the 70s. Um, and more children were being diagnosed with autism. So I think it was important to see if there was some sort of link. Um, but after we'd done several dozen studies, you get to the point where you say there's no link. All of these studies are showing that vaccines don't cause autism and it's time to move on and look at other potential causes of autism. There were many in the, in the research community who were not satisfied by the mountain of evidence. Um, I was, most of the scientists were, um, and that was really one of the driving forces for creating the Autism Science Foundation was we really took a stand that this question is asked and answered. Here's the data. Yep. The science is complete. It's not a situation where one study says it does and one study says it doesn't. They were all showing no link between autism and vaccines, and it was time to move on. So um, we took a very clear stance when we launched the Autism Science Foundation that um, that question had been asked and answered, and that science had answered it, and we need to move on. How is the state of collaboration, would you say, in the autism space now? I guess there's still some factions, but do you feel like there's generally a collaborative spirit? Um, I think the factions have changed. You know, 11 years ago when we launched the Autism Science Foundation, it was really um, the people who were pro-vaccine research and the people who were anti-vaccine research. Right. Now the, the, you know, like any nonprofit world, when you when you start to peel away the layers, you'll see disagreements. That's why there's always more than one advocacy group for any disease. Um, I think what we're struggling with right now in the autism community is really the the definition of autism. Uh, so um, when the DSM-5 was released, it, it broadened the definition of autism tremendously, the, actually the DSM-4 and the DSM-5. The DSM-4 introduced the term Asperger's syndrome. And that was a diagnosis for individuals who are much higher functioning than, say, my brother, who has intellectual disability, he has no language. My daughter has severe intellectual disability. She has minimal functional language. She has uh, self-injurious behavior, she can be aggressive towards others. Um, and I think the, the issue now is trying to redefine the autisms so that appropriate interventions can be provided. So right now, if you say someone's diagnosed with autism, you may think of what, how you see autism portrayed in the popular media. Right, right. Like Sheldon Cooper on the Big Bang Theory, he may have autism or the new normal or there's a um, house or there are other shows where people with autism are, are surgeons. You know, my daughter is much more likely to consume medical care than to provide. Right, right. And in many ways, those depictions of very high functioning autism have had a very negative effect for 
people with severe autism in, in that people who don't know anything about autism look at Sheldon Cooper and they say, that's not so bad. He lives <laughs> independently. Right, he right. Won the Nobel Prize. He works at a university. He's a little, he's a little odd, um, but he gets by. My daughter doesn't get by. She's not right. going to be winning a Nobel Prize. Um, that doesn't mean she can't have a great life. I think she does have a great life now. She's in a residential community where she's a farmer and she loves animals and she's great there. She's so happy there. Um, but you know, I think that portrayal of autism as just this quirky, um, a, a different way of being has had a very negative, has had negative repercussions for people who have very severe autism because they are now being left behind. Um, By that limiting view, right? Or that limiting definition. And so education, Allison, is a big part of what you have to do, right? In terms of helping people understand. Yeah, so our, our organization, we have focused more on people with profound autism, people with autism who have limited language, who have um, restrictive and repetitive behaviors that really interfere with their ability to be out in the community uh, because they're self-injurious or they're aggressive towards others. They have been left behind. In, in the last few years. They cannot go to Washington and advocate for policies. Their parents need to help them with that. Um, and um, so that's, that's definitely been a, an issue in the, in the autism community is we're trying to redefine the autisms uh, so that if I say my daughter has profound autism, that communicates to you what her cluster of symptoms likely is and right. therefore what basket of services she might need. I notice, and, and the intentional autism's plural is, is part of your point, isn't it? That people don't define it as a singular term. There is in fact a wide range. And definitely, and the portrayal of autism as not so bad as you see on, on television has really hurt our fundraising because people say, oh, that doesn't look so bad. I don't need to donate to that. And Interesting. You, you, but you don't see a, a sitcom about individuals with profound autism who work on a farm. Right, um, right. It, it would be, it wouldn't be entertaining. It wouldn't be fun. So, you know, we're not, people with profound autism don't have the opportunities to be in the media and be seen. And they, they are forgotten. They are left behind. And that's a delicate balance. Obviously, you've got to be sensitive. It's hard to lift up those examples, I guess, right? Because of the privacy in, involved. Or, or is there a way, though, to, to, I guess, creating testimonials from parents and others who can articulate the challenges of families that are, are dealing with that? We are very focused on that. We, we feel it's our responsibility to be a voice for people with autism who don't have a voice. Right, who right. Who don't speak or who have very limited language. You know, my daughter can't advocate for her own needs. She relies on my husband and I to do that for her, as do thousands of children and adults with profound and severe autism like her all over the country and all over the world. Yeah, that's, well, it reinforces the important work you're doing and I'm glad uh, we can help elevate it through this conversation and many others you're having. I guess, Alice, I want to go back to your kind of leadership journey too. You started the foundation, what, 11 years ago. What, what surprised you? Uh, was it kind of what you expected or were there some early lessons maybe for nonprofit leaders who, like you, might consider something like that? I think when people launch nonprofits, they're very focused on the mission. And I totally understand that. Um, I, I see that all the time in the um, webinars and in the, the chat rooms that people see a need and they launch a nonprofit because they want to meet that need. And that's great. But at the end of the day, a nonprofit corporation is a corporation. And you need to think of it as a business. Yep. You're not going to be able to serve. You're not going to be able to fulfill your mission. So I, I was fortunate in that I have a business experience. I have an MBA. I understand how businesses run. That led me to make a series of decisions when we launched that probably were less popular uh, with regard to how we had to control our cash and how we had to spend and how we had to not spend. Um, <laughs> right. And 
you know, I, I saw it again during the, in the COVID-19 world. I saw so many amazing and outstanding nonprofit leaders struggling with the PPP applications and yep. the small business loans and these opportunities that were available to them and struggling with understanding their own financial statements and um, how to prepare the applications. And, um, <laughs> you know, so I, I think one piece of advice I, I might give to someone thinking of launching a nonprofit is partner with someone who understands the business side if you don't have those skills. And in many cases, people might, but if that's such an important piece of it that I think people don't, don't realize that at the end of the day, a nonprofit has to pay its rent. You have to pay payroll taxes. You have to run your payroll. You know, you have to handle the aspects of being a business. That's so well put. Your passion for the cause can carry you only so far, right? If your business collapses, and Definitely. clearly, <laughs> you started with that mind, uh, that mindset from the get-go. Have you changed, Allison, in your kind of leadership style of the foundation 11 years now later? How would you say from then to now, have you evolved, so to speak? Um, I think that in some ways I've changed some things, but in, in other ways not. I think that an important aspect of running a nonprofit is always trying to focus on how the needs of the families you serve are changing. Nice. And yep. they, they do change. And if you're not really out in the community, if you're not living it with them, you, you will miss that. I think that um, one of the reasons we try to hire parents of kids with autism or siblings of kids with autism or consult with them is so that we can keep our finger on the pulse of the community. We're out at community events, I mean, prior to COVID, we would be out at community events constantly, talking to parents, trying to understand the situation. As our own kids would get older, we would make sure to consult with the parents of younger kids um, and understand how the laws are changing and how things are changing. But I, I think that's really important is to make sure that you continue to understand how the needs of your constituents are evolving. I uh, love that. Love how you articulate that, that vision. In fact, I was going to ask you, you know, what is your vision for the Autism Science Foundation? You mentioned that you've turned kind of the uh, lemon into lemonade with a virtual event, maybe expanding geographically. Would that be among the things you hope to achieve even greater kind of international outreach? In February, so we are, we're an East Coast based organization, but in February of 2020, a month before the quarantine, <laughs> right, uh, right. we announced our plans to open an office in San Francisco. Wow. And uh, how, how was that going though? Uh, we under had, the circumstances. We had, that's now on hold. <laughs> <laughs> right. We had this launch party and um, we had a great turnout. We had, in, in 2019, we had expanded our, our day of learning program from New York to the West Coast. We had held a very successful day of learning in San Francisco. Um, we're very eager to also work with companies that are creating products for families of kids with autism and help them understand our market and what our families need. So that's why we chose Silicon Valley because yep. we Yep. And had a lot of instances where we were working with those companies and we said, let's open an office there and really do it. And also there were a lot of families out in California who um, wanted to be involved with, with our work. And that immediately got shut down. Um, and we'll see, we'll see where that goes. I, I don't know. I mean, we're actually closing our New York City office right now in an effort to save money. And because my team loves working at home and they're doing a great job working at home, Right. So we've had several conversations over the last month about what should we do with our office? Should we continue to pay for expensive storage? You know, it's, it sort of was bugging everyone. We were paying rent and no one was there. So, so we're, uh, we'll be moving out of our office at the end of this month. And if things open up, you know, we'll move back. But you yeah. have to sort of take it as it comes. Agile, right? You have been agile, proven yourself to be and your organization, but it, it leads to the question, and, and you know, a lot of our colleagues in nonprofit leadership are struggling with strategic planning. You know, how do you plan 
you know, years ahead, much less, you know, several months now that you're trying to deal with, but have you kind of refocused strategic planning uh, as an organization? I think where you have to think long-term in this environment is financially. I think right. you need to sit down and you need to look at your financial situation and you need to be very realistic about your revenue projections and you need to take a very hard look at your costs because the worst thing would be to go out of business. Indeed. Um, and so we've spent a lot of time really understanding our finances and I spent a lot of time trying to help be more open with our staff about our finances um, and, and, and they get it. They get it. I think in terms of strategic planning, I don't know that that's so valuable right now. I think the focus is on being nimble and on implementing systems that enable you to be nimble and to react quickly to the, the constantly changing needs for the, of the people you're serving. So I'm not spending time right now writing a five-year plan. <laughs> right, um, right. I am focused more on what are we going to be doing this fall and this winter and making sure that whatever systems we implement are very flexible because who knows what's going to happen exactly right. this winter. And you need to be able to really implement change quickly in order to continue to be effective. How does that manifest itself, Allison? Is it kind of real time, week to week? Your team, I'm assuming, has very regular meetings. And uh, is that the nature, literally, of your discussions on that basis? We've gotten a lot more. I mean, I would say we were in crisis mode. In <laughs> right, right. And, um, how do you use Zoom? And how do you unmute? <laughs> and that's probably yes, not a good yes. background. And, uh, so we've gotten more professional that way and we've adopted new systems and policies to reflect the COVID world. But I, you know, I, I still think that the best way to be effective in an environment ripe with change, ripe with change, is to be able to also change. So I'm I'm not really focused on long-term policies or long-term planning. We're really just focused on what do our families need now? What do we think they're going to need in a month? And if, if we're wrong, we want to be able to change quickly. Absolutely. And clearly, you've demonstrated that. And well, one other thing, too, Alice, I want to ask you about is your board. Uh, you and I talked about a little bit previously. You have a fantastic advisory board. Um, but maybe you could speak to the nature of your board structure. And then I want to maybe unpack a little bit how you interact with them. We have two boards. We have a scientific advisory board and there it's comprised of some, I think, the top autism scientists from around the world and we value their advice tremendously. They've been a tremendous resource for us in terms of understanding what the scientists need, how we should structure our pivot grants, how we should adapt our pivot grants. You know, each time we, we're now on our third request for applications for pivot grants and each time it's changed a little bit the first wow. one was really an emergency grant what do you need in order to continue to do research but then our our advisory board said the, the constituency that's really suffering are young investigators you know they're being lost so right. let's, let's do a special round of grants for uh, postdoctoral students and early career investigators. So we did that. And now they're saying the time has come now where we really need to look at not just responding to COVID-19, but doing science, looking at how COVID-19, how our, how our uh, kids with autism and adults with autism are being affected by COVID-19. So this next round, I'm hoping we'll look at issues such as how do our kids do on telemedicine appointments versus typically developing kids? How are our kids um, engaged in e-learning versus typically developing kids? How are adults with autism able to work in a home environment versus the general population? So really understanding how COVID-19 has affected the day-to-day -day lives of individuals with autism, but doing that in a very scientific way. So our board, to get back to your question, our board has been instrumental in helping us to develop the protocols 
uh, for those. And I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to our chief science officer, Dr. Alicia Halliday, who is leading that effort. And she's amazing. Um, I often say the best thing I've ever did as the <laughs> Science Foundation is hire Alicia. Finding talent. Yes, indeed. Um, and, and then our regular board right. has been, they've been very understanding of how things have to change. They've been very understanding of my need to be able to make decisions quickly. Uh, things that typically I would wait to run, to run, um, to share at a board meeting. I now send them by email and I'll say, you know, we really need to move on this. Uh, can't wait for the next board meeting. Need your input ASAP. And, and they're pretty good at, they've been pretty good at pivoting to, to email. And um, uh, I find that my email updates to the board are much longer uh, because we're doing so many things differently now. And, um, but they've, they've been, I think they, many of them have children with autism. Right. Children are now adults or some of them are younger. So they see it, they're living it. Um, and then the members of our board who are who are scientists are, are also living it and they've been really helpful to us in understanding the, the science behind COVID and the types of precautions we need to take um, and that the community needs to take. So I, I'm very fortunate to have a very understanding and, and flexible board. Well, I'm, I'm very impressed again with what is the frequency of your grant cycle? You know, I think most organizations take years to pivot and it sounds like you've pivoted multiple times just since the pandemic started. Is that correct? We've tried to do the pivot grants on rapid review. Right. And, and again, I have to thank and commend the autism scientists who are our reviewers um, and who have been willing to review quickly. And, you know, I think that comes down to, to two things. One is from the time we launched, we tried to really make sure that everything we did was evidence-based and scientifically focused. I always will say to families, your, your reputation is your greatest asset. Um, and I think we have tried to build a reputation in, in our brand, the Autism Science Foundation for Scientific Excellence. And that has encouraged the scientific community to want to work with us. And um, then the second is to really manage that relationship, not just reach out to them when, you, when we need something, but to be supportive of, of their work. They're very busy. They're running studies, publishing papers. And we, I mean, another COVID activity we've had is these virtual science fairs where we try to match families uh, who are home with scientific studies that are being conducted online so that the work continues. And I think the scientific community has been appreciative of Indeed. that. They, they can't run studies without our families participating. And so our efforts to sort of be a conduit there, I think has been appreciated by the scientific community. But you know, it, it's really just a question of, you can't always be asking, you also have to be giving. Uh, that's so well put, because uh, I was going to ask you about, again, your fundraising philosophies, which you have already articulated, and it sounds like you have balanced very nicely the, the resources you're providing, which in turn, hopefully, I guess, will bring a return in terms of investment back to you. Well, fundraising is also another area where we're, everyone is going to have to pivot. Fundraising in the, in the post-COVID world, you, you can't have events. We, we are having one of our events. Um, we we um, host a, a bicycling event right. here, and, and bicycling has actually been helped by the CDC as a, a good COVID activity because it's individual. Um, so we are still moving forward with our plans in October to host the Wall Street Rides FAR. Um, FAR, in that sentence stands for for autism research. Right. Uh, so we have worked with the CDC um on a covid mitigation strategy for that event we will have social distancing we've added more registration tents we're staggering the start times we won't be having the typical band we won't be having the vendors we won't be having our beautiful buffet lunch that everyone loves we'll just do <laughs> grab and go meals but it definitely helps to have some good contacts at the cdc because they were really able to 
work with us to develop this COVID mitigation strategy. We've implemented all of the suggestions that they've made. And we're hopeful that we'll be able to offer our families an opportunity to still have a great day of bicycling and also raise funds. Um, we ask the, all of the participants in, in the event to reach out to their friends and family and, and raise money, you know, get sponsors for their, their riding. Um, and so far that is continuing to happen. So um, Love that. I'm, I'm still hopeful that the nonprofit community will find ways to be able to, to fundraise. We're, we're trying to do online cycling events. We had an online yoga event. Um, we're, we're seeing what works. Indeed, and adapting accordingly. And what a great example your event is, both of a fundraising tactic, but just an uh, you know, agile response to doing something that is healthy and uh, hopefully will generate the kind of revenue you deserve. Um, Allison, you've been fantastic uh, hitting so many of the topics. I know that uh, nonprofit leaders are facing. Is there any other advice? I, I'm, I'm struck by, of course, your first uh, lesson of it is a business. Nonprofit leadership needs to start with a business mindset. But anything else you might add to your advice for someone kind of in a similar stance that you were, you know, years ago? Well, yesterday I spoke to a, a young woman who had worked at a nonprofit for <clears throat> four years and was laid off because they're they're scaling back. And I'll I'll share the advice I gave her, and that we we really try to embrace at the Autism Science Foundation, which is to look for what COVID-19 has changed in terms of how we need to change. You know, so for her, I said, this might be an opportunity for you to expand in an area of providing services that you never thought you would be providing. So we have changed in that we are more focused on the needs of individual families and on um, providing evidence-based information with regard to how families can adapt. Like the, I think the example I gave earlier was how to use ABA techniques to get your child to wear the mask. Right, right. Um, helping, using ABA techniques to help them understand six feet of social distancing, things, things like that. But I think, you know, I don't want to say look at COVID as an opportunity, but it's certainly not. But I think it has, it has, brought, it has brought changes it has been incredibly disruptive. And I think nonprofits have to respond to that disruption, not try to say, well, we're, we're just gonna find a way to do business as usual under COVID, but say, embrace that things have changed and that nonprofits also have to change and that you can still implement your mission, but that your mission may need to shift because the needs of your constituents have shifted. So well put, Allison. Thank you. That is perfect. And uh, food for thought for nonprofit leaders everywhere. Indeed, they're going to have to adapt and business as usual is not going to be the same. So I hope many will follow your lead there. Um, if my, I might ask one more favor, it is, of course, a book recommendation. I ask every guest to share something and I, I believe you might have something that has struck you of late as a good read. Um. I recently read the book Indistractable uh, by Nir Eyal, E-Y-A-L. I loved this book. It really spoke to me. Uh, he makes the distinction in the book between traction and distraction and really talks about how, um, it's not so much how not to let distraction into your life, but how to plan so that things that you want to do have traction. And are not distractions. So a great, right, example right. Is, a great example is social media. I love social media. I love to be on Facebook. I love to see what my high school friends are up to and my college friends. They're all doing such interesting things. And I, I enjoy seeing that. But so much of what you read is don't go online. It's just a, it's a time suck. And it's a waste of your time. <laughs> right. Your productivity. What, the point he makes in this book is if you plan time, to be on Facebook, then it's not a distraction. Right. Content. So he really speaks to the idea of time blocking, which I, I embrace. I, mean, I like to get up early and really focus first thing in the morning on a hard piece of work, you know, something that requires thought, um, a piece of writing, writing an article, or if I'm reviewing a scientific publication for a, as a, 
as a peer reviewer for a journal, I have to, you know, be able to focus in on the, the data tables. And um, so I like to do that first thing in the morning. And then I like to go for a run. Um, then we have our morning meeting. And then after our morning meeting, I'll sometimes block a little time in my calendar to go on Facebook and read Twitter. <laughs> but you're in charge though, right? You're not reacting. You're, you're proactive in that. Uh, you need a little break. Or, right. I think the point he makes is that as long as you can build that into the day, it's not a distraction. And I know I'm going to do that for 15 minutes and then I'm going to get back to, I'm going to get back to work. And yes. so it doesn't spend the whole day. It must mean the whole day. I'm, I'm doing it for a defined period of time, but I don't have to feel guilty for doing it that time because it's not distracting me. It has traction. Love it. Uh, great recommendation. It is one indeed that is on my bookshelf. So I am also a fan. So delighted to lift it up with you and also lift up the great work you're doing, Allison, uh, through the foundation. Uh, we'll certainly put in the show notes links to your website. Is there anything else you would like to call our listeners uh, their attention to in terms of what you're doing? Well, I would invite everyone who's listening to participate in our annual day of learning. We will, because it will be virtual, we're able to bring top uh, scientists from all over the world to participate as panelists. Um, that event will be on September 22nd. As I said, the tickets are free. It's a great opportunity uh, to learn what's going on in the autism world and about autism science and sort of the cutting edge thinking on what we're doing with robot therapy partners and how we're working with adolescents with autism and adults with autism. It's just, it's always a great day in person and we've been able to really pivot and we think we're developing a very fun online experience that will preserve the feel of the day. And uh, that's been another area where we've had to refocus our skills. I don't think anyone really had a lot of expertise in hosting these virtual, virtual events, um, virtual conferences. Um, but again, my, my team has done great learning there and this event is shaping up to be just a really fun afternoon. So I hope that's exciting. Fun. I hope everyone will um, take advantage of the free tickets. Indeed. You offered a very compelling invitation, and that is something we will happily lift up as well. So, Allison, thank you so much for joining me on the path. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Allison as much as I did and came away with some really practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and perhaps more importantly, enhance your organization strategy. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com. You can find out more about Allison's virtual events, her pivot grants, and other resources that should provide you great ideas as to how you might apply some of these things to your nonprofit. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by going to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll see links to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.